0: I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2, and we are going to shorten the passage as announced. We are going to be reading and looking at the first four verses, verses 8 to 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. By all accounts, Luke's Gospel provides the most extensive details regarding the birth of our Lord Jesus. Here in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, An angel of the Lord comes bearing good news to shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, Luke tells us. News regarding the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is soon to be born. And that this heavenly emissary, ablaze with the glory of God, should have announced such magnificent news to shepherds, in particular, was truly astounding. For such an occurrence runs counter to the ways and thinking of the world, which places a tremendously high premium on outward impressiveness, on pride of position and power. And from a human-worldly standpoint, the social status of shepherds was anything but desirable. In biblical times, shepherds were a despised, marginalized class. And why was this so? First of all, on a religious level, they were despised because of the very nature of their occupation— the very nature of their occupation kept them from observing the ceremonial laws, the various ceremonial laws, because, you see, they were usually in the fields tending their sheep from, say, March to November. And so they had very little time for temple attendance, and as such, they were looked down upon by the religious establishment as being unclean. Socially, shepherds were of ill repute. Someone puts it like this. They had, quote, an unfortunate habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. And that really is a tactful way of saying that they were known for stealing, for taking that which had not belonged to them. They were considered to be unreliable witnesses in a court of law. They simply weren't allowed to testify in court. These shepherds, shepherds were a marginalized, despised class. Now based on the of Luke's account of the birth of Christ in which we see angelic beings appearing, appearing to godly individuals such as Mary, Simeon, and Anna, That God sent these shepherds, that God sent these angels to shepherd announcing the birth of Christ suggests that these hard-working peasant shepherds in particular were men of piety and devotion to God. We're not saying that conclusively, but based on the pattern of Luke's gospel, we could say, reasonably say, that they evidently were like Mary, were like Simeon and Anna people of deep piety and devotion to God. There they were, keeping watch over their flock, by night when suddenly they had a heavenly visitation. This is not the first time in Scripture we see God manifesting His presence, His glory, not to the religious establishment, but to ordinary run-of-the-mill individuals as they go about their daily tasks, what would be considered as the ordinary mundane activities of life. We recall that it was when Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep that God appeared to him in the burning bush. We see that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it was when Gideon was threshing wheat that the angel of the Lord appeared to him with a mandate to go and deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And this is very important because you see, there's a faulty, mistaken notion abroad, even in our age, that holds to this idea that quote unquote spiritual work. The work of the ministry is real, bona fide work. That God's presence and power is not as real in one's work. If one is working, say, in the fields, as a farmer, if one is working as a plumber, if one is working as a building contractor, if one is working as a custodian, a janitor, that God is not very much present and powerfully present in those jobs, in those situations. And let me say this, that as long as that work, that occupation is God-honoring, God can and God does manifest his power, his presence, even to a person doing what we would call the humdrum mundane activities of life. It's not just in the pulpit, it's not just in the church that God manifests his presence. God manifests his presence even in the trenches where people are getting their hands dirty. And even as they were there in the fields watching their flock by night, verse 9 tells us, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Throughout scripture, we see that a response of terror and dread oftentimes come upon people who have encountered a sense of the divine presence, a manifestation from God. Many times we see in scripture, persons are visited by an angel with a message from God and there is a sense of great terror and of great dread. And why is that so? Because having stood in the presence of God, angels come from the presence of God, bearing, reflecting the radiance of the glory and power of God. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, humankind has been ill at ease in the presence of the splendor and glory of Almighty God. Man in his sin cannot tolerate the glory of God, even though redeemed, here's the point, if God were to make his presence felt in a very real way, we would not be able to tolerate it. Yet, there are people today who glibly claim that they have had divine visitations, they have had encounters with God, where they have actually seen God, and here's the point, the truth is they really don't know what they are talking about. You look at men such as the beloved Apostle John, who, when Jesus was here on earth, the Bible tells us that he often leaned on Jesus' bosom. And yet when he was on the Isle of Patmos, when he saw the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, John says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We see a similar response in the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel. We see that kind of response in the prophet Isaiah, where when he encountered the glory of God, he saw something of the awesome power and glory of God, he cried out, he says, Woe is me, for I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips." He says, "Man, eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Praise God, one glorious effect of the saving grace of God is that one of these days we are going to see God in all his glory, in all his splendor. Because the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That, that the theologians call that the beatific vision. Well, let's consider this message the angels delivered to these humble peasant shepherds. Well, let's see, first of all, verses 10 and 11. What kind of message was this that the angel brought to these shepherds? First of all, notice it was a message of reassuring consolation. It was a message of reassuring consolation. The introductory words of the angels to these frightened shepherds were... Fear not. Fear not. What a pertinent and timely message for an age in which you and I live. Today we live in a world of ever-increasing fear and tension. There's a fear and dread of lethal diseases. We've just been through a pandemic and yet there's a feeling that it's not really over. Many have the nerve-wracking concern as to which virus, which epidemic will be next. Many are petrified by the thought, will I be the next victim? There's a mounting fear of worldwide economic collapse. As we look at a rising superpower such as China. As we see North Korea flexing its nuclear ambitions, as we observe continuing developments in the Middle East, what were the maneuverings of Syria, Iran, Turkey, And even the present war between Russia and Ukraine, many are fearful of the prospect of a nuclear showdown. These are some of the things that haunt our world by way of fear. On every hand, fear has taken hold of many a heart, and my friends, the angel's message to these shepherds over 2,000 years ago, fear not, is very much the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For by his death and his triumphant resurrection, the word of God teaches in first Peter chapter 1 verse 3 that we are afforded a living hope. Peter says there in first Peter chapter 1 verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through faith, we have peace with him. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 teaches, in fact, he himself is our peace, says Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, which among other things means that the antidote to our fears, listen, the antidote to our fears, the fears which haunt us are not to be found in creature comforts. They are not to be found in people. They're not to be found in possessions. They're not to be found in pleasure. They're never going to be found in some pill. Listen, the antidote to our fears, the fears that haunt our world, the fear that keeps even many a Christian restless at nights is to be found in the person and presence of Christ in our hearts and lives. Second, as regards the message of the angels to the shepherds, notice it was a message of joyful celebration. It was a message of joyful celebration. The reason these shepherds were not to fear was because of the news they were about to hear. And what was that news, said the angel, in verses 10 and 11, he says this, I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all peoples. Good news. The word he uses there, the word the text uses there, euangelizo, based on that word, is, base, is is the word from which we get our word gospel. Which means what? Good news. Now, good news of great joy was the tidings, the message which these angels brought, which this angel brought to these shepherds. And the question is, here's the question we want to ask. The question is, what was it about this message of the, shep- of the angel to the, to the shepherds that made it such good and immensely joyful news? I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy which shall be to all people. What was it about this message, this news, that made it such good and immensely joyful news? First and foremost, beloved, it was this. It was news regarding a savior. It was news regarding a deliverer. Let me say here, and I say this without, I'm not saying this as a pious statement, and you're going to see what I'm talking about. Listen, the greatest good news that this world could ever hear is not some breakthrough scientific discovery such as an effective definitive cure for cancer or even the coronavirus or the common cold for that matter. The greatest good news that this world could ever hear, let me say secondly, is not, in as much as it would be good news, it's not the greatest news. It's not a turnaround of the economies of the world. As good as it would be, the greatest good news this world could ever hear is not the end of hunger around the world. Let's bring this a a little closer home. The greatest good news that you and I could ever hear at any given time in this country is not a change of political parties. And I would hope we have come full circle by now to recognize the truth of that statement because the truth is you put two of them together and they don't make one. We cannot put our hope in any political party. Human governments will fail us even as they are failing us. The greatest news of all times, beloved, is that a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior who is Christ the Lord has come into our world. Why so? Because on account of his birth, the provision has been made whereby God and sinners can be reconciled. By virtue of his birth over 2,000 years ago, light and life to all he brings, the songwriter says, indeed, he was born that man no more may die Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Indeed, as the final Adam from above, he it is who reinstates us in God's love. You know why? Because outside of Christ, man at his best is alienated from God. He's an enemy of God. He's wicked against God. And it is Christ, my friends, who unites men, who reconciles men to God That is what our Lord Jesus has done by virtue of the incarnation. And this, my friends, has to be the single greatest good news there is not just for time, but for all eternity. So let me illustrate what I was saying earlier, that those things I mentioned to you are not the best news we could have heard. You see, we may find a cure for disease or diseases. But we'll never find a cure for the disease of sin, which is to be found only in Christ. Let's say we find a cure for disease. Let me illustrate. If we find a cure for cancer... If we find a cure for all of the deadly maladies, let me ask this question. Does it mean we are going to continue living and living and living? Not at all, because it is appointed unto man once to die. You get the best of doctors, you get rid of all of these maladies, and we are going to die someday. There are some people who think that that's not real, and they're talking about freezing their organs, their brains, their heart. Let me say this, my friends, we all die sooner or later. Sin, my friends, is what? The cancer of the soul. Like leprosy, sin is a fulsome disease morally and spiritually. Listen, sin disfigures sin, debilitates its victims. It is an account of sin that humanity is fallen and fallen away from God, is lost, is dead, is alienated from God. It is sin that has made us hideous and loathsome in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. I think, for example, of the human heart, to show where the real problem lies, the disease lies, take away all the deadly diseases that are killing people today, colon cancer, you name it. And at the end of the day, man's heart remains as wicked and depraved as it is. Sin has made us ugly, morally ugly, defiled, deformed, and from this disease condition of sin, my friends, there's none that can deliver except Christ, the great physician, Christ, the healer. We may improve our economies. And our financial status, but to what end if Christ is not the sum and substance of our possessions? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, our Lord Jesus said? Mark chapter 8 verses 36 and 37. We could have money filling our pockets. We could have big houses, big mansions. I didn't, let me say this. If we don't have the everlasting mansions that are to be found in Christ, we are nothing, nothing, a big, fat, empty zero. For we brought nothing into this world and it is sure we can take nothing out. The greatest thing we can leave this life with is the treasures of heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hungry may be fed, but to what end if they are not fed the bread which comes down from heaven, which if a man eats, he shall never die, John chapter 6 and verse 50. Again, we may have a change of government, but to what end if we have not Christ as ruler, as governor in our hearts and our lives? because he is the only governor, my friends, who can bring true and lasting peace and order. At the end of the day, we could say this, that no news is good news. No news is good news, let alone good news of great joy unless it concerns Christ as Savior and as Lord. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And if we put this message of the angel in context, Um, based on where the shepherds were that day, based on the whole context in which our Lord Jesus was born, we need to understand how timely and how precious such a message must have been in the ears of these humble peasant shepherds. For you see, at that time, the people of Israel were chafing, they were chafing, they were really ill at ease under the governance of Rome. The land at this time was under Roman occupation. You can imagine this was a time of social unrest. This was a time, for example, when dissident, dissident zealots would, from time to time, engage in guerrilla type resistance against the Roman government. This was a time when many a would-be messiah would rise up only to be crushed by the power of the Roman government. And to hear then that the Lord was raising up a deliverer, to hear that God was raising up a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ from the royal line of David was tremendously great and joyful news. But as the angel suggests, notice, as the angel suggests, this was not to be just another messiah, another would be Messiah. Rather, this Messiah, this Savior, this Deliverer was to be none other than who? The Divine Lord of Heaven. Not your typical warrior Messiah, militant, worldly Messiah. This was a Christ, this was a Savior, this was a Messiah Deliverer who was Christ. what Christ means, the Anointed One, Christ, the Lord, the Divine Lord. This divine savior would be Israel's rightful ruler, the one spoken of by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as coming forth from the Lord, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah chapter 5, and verse 2. And so you'll notice, for example, that the aged prophet Tess Anna. Notice how the prophetess Anna implicitly acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ when he was there as a babe in Bethlehem. She recognized him consonant with the angel's proclamation. She recognized him as Israel's Messiah. Because look at what Luke 2 and verse 38 says. And coming up at that very hour, that is at the time Mary and Joseph were presenting Jesus in the temple... Here's what scripture says. She began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to all, speak of him to all who were, here it comes, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that phrase, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, was often understood in political terms because, as I said, there was expectation that this worldly. Military-style Messiah would come. He would overthrow Rome. He would free Israel from the tyranny of Rome. Anna sees here this savior as the one who would redeem Israel. Not just in political terms. In fact, he was no political messiah. He was first and foremost a redeemer from the power and tyranny of sin. You'll also notice that the aged Simeon, Simeon who had been, notice Luke 2 verse 25, had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. That tells you again the mood, the popular mood of Israel at this time. It was one of deep sorrow. It was one of gloom. Why? Because they were chafing under the Roman government. Rome, their country, Jerusalem was occupied territory. And notice, both Anna and Simeon recognized Jesus to be the divine Savior and Lord in accord with the angels and also. Just listen to how Luke, listen to Luke's, rather Simeon's description of Jesus as a baby. Luke 2.26.32 says of Simeon, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death, For my eyes, here's how he describes the Lord Jesus, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. By the way, notice from Simeon's declaration, a very instructive truth, particularly for those who are not saved, those who are not yet converted, those who have not yet come to know Christ as Savior. And what is that truth? That one is not truly, one is not truly prepared, one is not ready to die until one has seen by faith and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. You you notice what Simeon said the moment he saw Jesus and he took him up in his arms? He says, Lord, I'm ready to die. Lord, let you know your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. Let me say this. You are not ready to die. If you're not saved, you're not ready to die until you have seen by faith and embraced the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. And let me say this more than anything else. You need him. In fact, truth is, you need him more than your next breath. So the message of the angels to the shepherds was great news of joyful celebration, first of all, because it was news regarding a divine savior, a divine deliverer, Christ the Lord, this Lord, this Redeemer that both Anna and Simeon spoke of in such glowing, ele- elevated terms. And we're winding down this morning, but second, the message of the angels to the shepherds was good news. It was good news of great joy. News of joyful celebration. Why? Because it was news. Here it comes. It was news of worldwide significance, worldwide implication. It was news of far-reaching, saving significance for sinful humanity. Here's the message. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And as regards this good news of great joy, this news of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, note the progression of its application. It's very very important we see this. Note the progress of its application. As proclaimed by the angel angel of the Lord. Notice first of all, the angel said, I bring you. To whom was he speaking? Well, the context makes it clear immediately to whom? The shepherds, the shepherds. I bring you, shepherds, fear not, for I, behold, I bring you, that is you, shepherds, and in the Greek, the you there is emphatic, I, I bring you good news. The angel, as it were, was saying to these shepherds, I bring you you of all people, you who are despised, you are, who are despised, marginalized class, you whom the religious establishment looked down upon, you whom society disparages and despises and regards as of being little account, I bring you good tidings of great joy. My friends, how wonderful it is to know that the message of Christ's birth that came from God through the angel, was not first and foremost to the rich and powerful. It was not to royalty. It was not even to the religious establishment. Notice, it was to poor, humble, peasant shepherds. People on the margins. People who were basically written off. People of little account, socially and otherwise. And oh, my friends, such is the wonder working the strange, counterintuitive way in which God often works in dealing with humanity. As Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, he says, Look among yourselves. He says, Look at how you got saved, for consider your calling, brethren, how that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many are powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose, here it comes, what is foolish, In the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing. Things that are. And why does God do that? Notice verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen. You might be regarded... As being of little account and nobody and nothing. And the glorious news of the gospel is this. That the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ reaches such who in the eyes of the world and who even the eyes of themselves are nothing. Nothing. You see, knowing who they were, how they were generally perceived, these shepherds would not have arrogantly claimed that God sent an angel to deliver this glorious news to them because of how upright and important they were. They knew that that was not so. And the point, beloved, is this. It is the nature of the gospel to commend itself, not to the rich and powerful, not to the arrogant and self-sufficient but to those who at heart are humble, to those who see themselves as nothing, to those who see themselves as being in need of the mercy and grace of God. In the second place, note the further application of the angel's message regarding the birth of the Savior. He says, he said, not only to you I bring good news to you, but he says this, that will be for all the people, all the people. All the people refers to whom? Don't tell me as yet every single person in the world. Not yet. I bring good news to you. Yes, you shepherds, which shall be to all the people who are all the people. It would be based on the immediate context to all Israel. But the application of this good news is not just to all Israel, is not just to the, to the Jews. How do we know that? We know that because part of Simeon's prayer, if you go back to Simeon's prayer, Luke 2 to 30, 32, we're in addressing God. He refers to the Lord Jesus. Notice how he refers to the Lord Jesus. He refers to the Lord Jesus as quote, your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation, to the gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We here we here we see the pattern the priority of God's salvific purposes which is this Romans chapter 1 verse 16 salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or gentiles. That's God's program. And the good news of the gospel this morning, beloved, is that Christ is an accessible Savior. He is a Savior who is applicable um, to any, relevant to any, and all who would trust Him. Indeed, He came to proclaim good news, not to those who think of themselves as being well-off and okay. He came to preach good news. Luke 4.18, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are on the margins, the riffraff of society. The message of the angel to these humble peasant shepherds then was good news of great joy because it was news concerning the divine Savior, the divine Lord. And this message, in effect, says that Christ is a Savior for all men. Irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of social status, irrespective of where they stand in relation to the religious establishment in their society, Christ is the Savior. Of all indeed news of all news is that Jesus Christ is Saviour for all. As we read in first Timothy four verse ten, he's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. First Timothy chapter two verses four through six. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for us to be testified in due time. Of course, listen, and I close with this. Bring the message to a close. When when the Bible says he is the Savior of all men, this is not teaching as some er erroneously understand. The doctrine of universalism that says Everybody is going to be saved because Jesus died on the cross. No, 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 no. That's not true. We know that people are going to be lost because Scripture shows that. Such teaching is known we are supported by the Word of God. People should repent of their sins They should turn to Christ. Why? Because according to Acts 17 verse 30, God commands men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has raised from the dead, whereby he has given witness unto all men. There is a call this morning to repent. Why? Because except you repent, you will perish. People should repent of their sins because there's a judgment coming, a judgment that will issue in vengeance on those who do not know God and on them that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. But I leave you this morning with the good news of the gospel. The good news is this. Christ Jesus came into this world over 2,000 years ago as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. He came so that he might take care of the sin problem that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the greatest, the single greatest good news of all. Have you accepted that news? Have you welcomed that news? If not... Why not?